Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. As we've been stating all along in our examination of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Philippi to express his joy in the Lord and to encourage their joy in the Lord. I know in this life there are times when we experience great joy and there are times when it seems our joy diminishes. There are times when uh, we are so joyful we feel like we can't stand much more and there are times when we wonder where the joy went. Life is that way. But there is coming a day, my friends, when the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory will be perfected in everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that joy will be perfected in what the Apostle Paul calls the day of Christ Jesus. He mentions it three times in this letter because he wants to underscore the fact that our joy, while it may be increasing or while it may be waning, our joy is in the Lord. And when our Lord returns, He will perfect that joy in you and in me. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, if you want to turn there, if you will, please, we are taking a look at this day of Christ Jesus. We've kind of taken a parenthetical um, sidestep from the book of Philippians simply because the Apostle Paul mentions the day of Christ Jesus twice in his opening remarks to the Philippian Christians. And so it gave us opportunity to explore what the day of Christ Jesus really is. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, this is a passage that was in part part of the call to worship that Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service. Note what he says in verse 28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now note this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. In theology, this is called the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. And the reason it is called the golden chain of salvation is because all chains are comprised of links that are connected together. A chain is not one link. A chain is at least two links, 
and several links. That's what makes it a chain. Each link is important to the chain. And in salvation, there are several steps that God takes in order to secure your salvation. If you're a Christian today, there were several steps that the Lord God took in order for you to become a Christian. And if you're not a Christian today, understand that God takes those same steps uh, to, uh, in, in order to make you a child of God, uh, in order to bring you to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So this chain does not detail every step that God takes in saving us, but it does tell us that salvation has a beginning point and salvation has an ending point. And that from beginning to end, it is the work of God in its entirety. Salvation from its very beginning to its very end is the work of the Lord. Spurgeon said, with regard to salvation, it is all of grace. It is all of grace. It is entirely the work of God in us by the free act of God's sovereign will. Now I want you to note in this passage, verses 29 and 30, there are five important verbs that the Apostle Paul uses here. For new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. You note those again. For new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I also want you to note that they're all in past tense. And that's a very important thing to observe. Because from the very beginning to the very end of salvation... God has determined that this is what salvation would consist of. This is the pattern. These are the steps. And they cannot, they will not ever be changed. They will never be changed. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, those whom he glorified. Now, first of all, God foreknew. To foreknow means to know ahead of time. To know ahead of time. God foreknew, God knew ahead of time those who will be saved. God knew ahead of time those who will be saved. Salvation in your life is not a last-ditch effort on God's part to redeem you. God knew a long, long time ago those who would be saved. God does not look down the corridors of time, knows who will exercise faith in Jesus Christ, and chooses them to be saved. That's not what God's foreknowledge is all about. And there are a number of reasons why that that is a false premise. And I uh, have had a minister a pastor, a dear friend of mine, who used that phrase quite often in speaking of salvation, that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would exercise faith in Jesus Christ and then chose to save you. That is not what the Scripture teaches. It teaches that God chooses people to be saved by the act of His sovereign will. 
This is known as the doctrine of election. We don't have time to get in that this morning. Uh, it would take us several Sundays to be able to unpack that doctrine. But just know, God foreknew, God knew those whom he would save. Second, God has predestined. And that word simply means to determine ahead of time. To determine ahead of time. The predestination... In some instances, people will say that God predestined people to be saved, God predestined people to be lost. That's not the point that the Apostle Paul is making here in this text. The predestination has to do with the outcome of salvation. He predestined those who are saved to be conformed to the image of his Son. He has predestined those who are to be saved to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, salvation has a purpose. You are saved for a reason. And it's not because God has nothing better to do with your life than to save you. And it is not because you have nothing better to do in your life than to be saved. The purpose of salvation is that the Christian will glorify God by being conformed to the likeness of his son Jesus Christ. We're not saved to be preachers. We're not saved to be teachers. We're not saved to be missionaries. We're not saved to be evangelists. Those are gifts of ministry. We are gifted to be those things, but we're saved. We're saved to glorify God in being holy and righteous as Jesus Christ is holy and righteous. This is called the doctrine of sanctification. And I wish we could unpack that box as well, but that's not our focus this morning. Third, God has called people to salvation. Now let me just simply talk to our Arminian friends here this morning. You did not call upon God to be saved. God called upon you. You did not call upon God to save you. It is God who called upon you. However, you have a responsibility in faith to answer that call. You have a responsibility to answer that call when the Lord God calls you. There are two such calls in Scripture. The first is known in theology as the general call that is issued by God through His Word and through the sharing of the Gospel. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know this passage very well. For God so loved the world. The world. Not just one or two or a select few. God so loved the entire corpus of humanity that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, would not die in their sin, would not be destroyed as a result of sin, but they would have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is the general call of God to individuals to acknowledge who God is and what God has done for them. This general call 
is given to the world to repent of sin by virtue of the love of God for the world as demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're not a Christian today, understand this. The only reason that you're alive is because God is patient with you. God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save you from sin. That was over 2,000 years ago. And because you have not repented of your sin and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you remain condemned in your sin. But God has not passed judgment upon you yet. He is patient with you, waiting for you to respond to His call to be saved. God is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any one of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. There is a second call that is, that is noted in Scripture, and that is the effective call of God to salvation by the, work and the working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Those who receive the call and repent of sin receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and are saved. The general call to repent and to acknowledge God as Lord, the specific call, the effective call of the Holy Spirit in your life, drawing you to Jesus Christ so that you will be saved. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Just a page or two to the right. Verses 9 and following. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and following. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, that is the gospel in a nutshell. You can't add anything to that. And you can't add anything to that because the Apostle Paul doesn't add anything to that. And the Apostle Paul doesn't add anything to that because Jesus Christ himself doesn't add anything to that. This is how a person is saved. And you may say, well, what about baptism? What about church membership? What about giving to missions? What about doing this and what about doing that? The Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, because Jesus Christ himself says, if you will confess with your lips the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot add to God's plan of salvation. That would make you greater than God, and you are not. So here you have salvation in a nutshell. If you're wondering, what must I do to be saved? Right there it is. It can't be any clearer. It can't be any simpler than that. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I want you to understand this. I said a while ago 
That it is, you did not call upon the name of the Lord to save you. It is God who called upon you to be saved. But you have a responsibility to answer that call. God is not going to save you against your will. God is not going to take you kicking and screaming into the gates of heaven when your desire is to pass through the gates of hell. God will issue the call and give you the responsibility to answer the call. And that's what he says here. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is your responsibility. That is my responsibility in the saving work of the Lord God. How then shall they call on him, verse 14, in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? And it is writ as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. You didn't know I had beautiful feet. <laughs> but I went to the podiatrist two weeks ago and he said, you have outstanding feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? But, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Failed in the responsibility to the call of God. They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, the prophet who lived 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out unto all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did, not, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation, the Gentiles. But Isaiah is very bold and says, he had to be bold because Isaiah was a prophet to the Jews. And he had to preach this gospel to them because they believed they were saved already because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. But Isaiah was very bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The general call, the effective call, but the responsibility that is given for you and for me to answer that call. Then it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies the saved. In other words, God declares a saved person righteous, acquitted of all sin. Look at Titus chapter 3. Turn right again all the way over to the book of Titus. Right before Philemon. Right before Hebrews. Right before James. Titus chapter 3. Verses 4 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Why is that? 
Why is that? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Why is that? Because none are righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness is but filthy rags. We have no righteousness that God would love us. We have no righteousness that God would esteem us. We have no righteousness that God would acknowledge us. Not by righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. You hear this? According to His mercy, He saved us. We have no righteousness. We can't save ourselves. The church has no righteousness. It cannot save you. The ordinances have no righteousness. They cannot save you. They are not vessels of grace. Only God can save the human soul. And he saves the human soul, not because of what we are able to do, but because of what God has already done through his son, Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, declared righteous, de uh, acquitted of all sin and guilt, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified. God declares us righteous. Now we, we will continue, I pray, we will continue to acknowledge the fact that we are sinful and that we are unworthy of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy. But understand also, even though we may acknowledge such as we look at ourselves in the mirror, when God looks upon us through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, he sees us holy and he sees us righteous. And then the fifth verb, God has glorified the Christian in Christ Jesus. Now, here starts the sermon. This morning, I want to focus our attention on this verb, glorified in Christ Jesus. Glorified in Christ Jesus. Those whom he foreknew, he knew ahead of time, called ahead of time, predetermined ahead of time, justified in their being saved, he now will glorify. But I want you to notice also past tense. Paul listed these verbs in the past tense because it's a done deal. It's a done deal. When you are known by God to be saved, because God has determined that, when you have been determined by God to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be holy and to be righteous, when God has called you to this salvation and you have answered that call and you have been saved, when you have been justified, declared righteous and declared holy by God, you will be glorified. You will be glorified. 
Now, what strikes me as being very, very important about this chain is it cannot be broken. There are some who will say, well, yes, I was saved, but then I committed some sin, and now I've lost my salvation. Dear friends, you do not believe the words of the Apostle Paul if you believe that. Those whom he saved, he glorifies. That cannot be changed by you or by anyone else. And I know that there are those who will laugh at us and they will mock us and they will say, well, you Baptists, you believe in in the security of the believer. No, I do not believe in the security of the believer. I believe in the security of salvation in the believer. It is not me who is secure. It is the salvation of God in me that is secure because that cannot be taken away. No one can take away the salvation that God has placed in my life. I may be a prodigal child from time to time, but I am still the son of my heavenly father. That salvation remains in the life of the believer forever. All of these verbs past tense. It has been historically set in the mind and in the plan of God. And God never changes his mind. And no one can ever change God's mind. Not even you. So those who have answered the call. Those who have been declared righteous by God. Holy by God will be glorified by God. When is that going to happen? It will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. It will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. What does it mean to be glorified? And here's where I really get excited about this. Not that I've been excited, not excited about it so far. But this is what really lights my candles. Glorification, the definition of glorification, the biblical definition of glorification is the final and ultimate removal of all the vestiges of sin. Can you say thank God for that? Can you say thank you, Lord, for that? There is coming a day, my friend, when all of the effects, all of the vestiges, all of the scars, all of the remembrances of sin will be completely and utterly removed from the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. It'll all be gone. It'll all be removed. And again, it will take place when Jesus Christ comes again. Turn back to the left to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, if you want to really get into this, about the coming of Christ and uh, the day of Christ Jesus, so on and so forth. 1 and 2 Thessalonians were written by the Apostle Paul to help the Christians in Thessalonica get this thing straight in their heads. And I know that there is confusion about the coming of the day of the Lord and so on, uh, the coming of the day of Christ Jesus, so on and so forth, even today because of false prophets and because people who do not handle the Word of God correctly and because of uh, all kinds of weird and strange theological... Um, 
twists and turns that people have had in interpreting the Scripture. But if you really want to get the straight skinny on this, read First and Second Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul, again, was straightening these Christians out on the matter of the day of the Lord and the day of Christ Jesus. But I want you to look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes... I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, understand here, let's let's be careful about our words. He is not calling them stupid. He's calling them ignorant. There's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. An ignorant person is a person who just doesn't know the facts. A stupid person is an individual who knows the facts but doesn't care. So he is saying to these Christians in Thessalonica, I know you don't understand. I know you don't have all of the facts. I know that you, you, you're confused about what is going on and what is happening. And some of you believe that the day of the Lord has already come. Some of you believe that the rapture has already come. And, and you're worried and you're upset. What has happened to our family, friends who, and friends who have died in Christ Jesus? Where are they now if it's already passed? Uh, you know, what about us? And so Paul says, I know you guys don't understand because no one has ever taught you this. He's calling them ignorant. He's not calling them stupid. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. That means... Well, there's so much here. I wish we had a a day or two. The, the, The terminology to fall asleep, it is the death of a Christian. When you read that... Uh, those who've fallen asleep. He's talking about those who've died as believers in Jesus Christ. They've fallen asleep. Why? Why does he use that term? Because they're going to wake up someday. Just like you did this morning. Maybe some of you got some sleep last night. Good for you. I'm glad you got some sleep. Miss Nancy and I didn't get much sleep last night because we're babysitting a baby dog. (laughs) But you fall asleep, you wake up. Christians who die, one day are going to wake up. Huh? Do you believe that? It's called resurrection. Scripture talks about that. Jesus talked about it a lot. Paul talks about it a lot. Fall asleep. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. It's amazing. Non-Christian people, they fret and concern, uh, fret and worry over what's going to happen to them when they die. I've been at the bedside of hundreds of people who have died. And it's an amazing thing. When I am at the bedside of a Christian who's dying, there's no anxiety. There's no fretting. There's no worry. There's peace. And in many instances, just before they breathe their last, they see. They see. It is revealed to them the glory of the Lord. I've I've sat by individuals when they have been dying and they've opened their eyes and, oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And they've heard the angelic music. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But I've also been by the bedside of those who did not believe in God, who had no faith in Jesus Christ. 
and have left this world crying and screaming and crying out to God, have mercy on me. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have hope. They have an assurance of what happens next. Verse 14, for if we believe, and that word if is third class conditional, it is since we believe, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who, who, uh, who sleep in Jesus, those who've died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When Jesus returns, when the day of Christ Jesus comes, and I don't know when that day is, and you don't know when that day is, and no man knows when that day is, but when that day comes, all Christians, from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all who have professed, believed, and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be raptured out of the earth. They will be taken out of the earth. Those who have died in Christ, my mother, my father, my uh, second oldest brother, some of you have family members that have died in Christ. All who have died in Christ Jesus will be resurrected from death. They will be resurrected from death. And those who are alive on that day will be completely and totally changed. Completely and totally changed. Now there was an individual who asked me one day, well what about an individual who say died uh, at, at sea and was eaten by the fish? Or what about an individual who, who died in a plane crash and, and was completely burned up? Or what about an individual who died and was cremated? Their bodies are not going to rise out of the grave. Listen, come on. We're talking about the sovereign God here. If God can make this human body out of dirt, He can recreate this body out of ashes. He can recreate this body out of whatever ate me when I fell into the water or was taken off by the birds or whatever, became a worm feast, doesn't matter. But if God created us out of dirt, He can recreate us out of ashes. He can recreate us out of any elements that he so desires. We're going to get to that in just a second. But just note this. When the day of, the, of Christ Jesus comes, all of those who have believed, received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will rise up in the air to meet him completely and totally changed from what they were in this life. And those who are alive when the day of Christ Jesus comes, they will hear the trumpet call. They will hear the shout of the angel. They will see the Lord Jesus appear in the, in the clouds. And they will be caught up after those who have risen out of their graves. After those who have died have risen up. We will rise up after them. And we will be immediately changed as well. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going to turn back to the left again. 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 50 through 57. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. Now I say, now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's an important thing to remember. Why are we going to be changed? Why does the Apostle Paul say that we're going to be changed? Because flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. That's why. The kingdom of God is not made for sinful fallen, corrupted human beings. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, what is the mystery? The mystery is God's truth that has not yet been revealed. Mystery here does not mean something strange, something weird, mysterious, something odd, something out of left field. The word mysterion here means some truth, some reality that has not been revealed yet. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, I'm going to tell you the plan of God for the end of the age. This is what God has established. This is what God has set. This is what is going to happen. It hasn't been made known to you yet, but I'm going to make it known to you now. So now this I say Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That's not, that means not all of us are going to die. But we shall all be changed. I'm going to get to back to that word here in a minute. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. He says it again. He emphasizes this. We will be changed. We will be changed. You're not going to be the same person you were in this life when Christ comes again. You're going to be a different person. You're going to be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, keep your feet planted firmly in the bedrock of the gospel of Jesus Christ, immovable. Don't let anybody shake you. Don't let anybody sway you by their false doctrine or twisting of Scripture. Stay steadfast, stay immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Those resurrected, those resurrected and those changed will be clothed in immortal, glorified, physical bodies that will never experience sin again. Can you say amen to that? Never experience 
sin again. We will never know sickness. We will never know pain. We will never know sorrow, handicap, heartache, or death ever again. Glorification is the complete salvation of the spirit, the mind, the body, and the soul. The complete salvation of the spirit, the mind, the body, and the soul. It is the finished work of God in bringing us into total and eternal fellowship with God our Father, with Jesus Christ our Lord, and with God's Holy Spirit. We will be in total and complete fellowship with all three persons of the Godhead. When Jesus returns, we will be changed immediately. The Apostle Paul said in the twinkling of an eye, how, how fast is that? Somebody has actually fact figured out how, how quick a twinkling of an eye is. I don't know how many one hundredths or one thousandths of a second that is, but it's pretty quick. The dead in Christ will be resurrected, as we stated, and changed. Those Christians who are alive will be caught up in the air and changed immediately. Now, the word changed is not metamorphosis here. In some instances, the word changed, the word translated change in your English Bible is the Greek word metamorphosis, which means to be transformed from one thing into another as a caterpillar is changed into a butterfly. That's not the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. He uses the word alasso. Alasso. It means to exchange. It's not to simply change from one thing into another. It means to exchange one thing for another, usually to exchange for something that is better. And that's the idea that the Apostle Paul would have us understand here. When we are, when the day of Christ Jesus comes and the dead in Christ rise from death and those who are alive are caught up in the air to meet him, we will exchange this body for a new and improved one, for a glorified body. For a body that is physical, yes. No blood, though. A body that is physical, but a body that is glorified in its physical properties. And the Apostle Paul went through the litany of that in just, uh, just a few moments ago. We will, we will not be the same person. We will not look like the same person. Now, were you speaking in reference to yourself? Oh, okay. Joe said, thank God. In the rapture, the Christian will exchange this mortal body, and our bodies are mortal. Paul called it a tent because it is put up and it is taken down. 
We will exchange this mortal body, this sinfully corrupt body, this temporal body, this body that is every day dying. We will exchange it for a body that will be immortal, a body that will be sinless, a body that will be eternal. We will no longer be sinful. We will be holy. We will no longer be corrupted. We will be totally righteous. We will no longer be alienated from God. We will be in complete fellowship with God. Now some have asked the question, well, what am I going to look like? Uh, will I look the same as I did here in the earth? Will I, you know, whatever? Scripture doesn't say. I don't know if you're still going to have red hair. I don't know if you're still going to have blonde hair. I don't, I don't know if you're still going to have gray hair. I don't know if you're even going to have hair. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say. The Bible does say that we will be known as we are, uh, we will know as we are known. But that's not speaking in reference to our physiology. It's speaking in reference to our, our reputation. Our, what do I want to say? What is, what's the word? Our, our testimony, our witness as a Christian in, our, in service for the Lord Jesus Christ. We will know, be known as one who leads people to Christ. We will be known as one who disciples people in the Lord. We will be known as one who encourages others in the faith. We will be known as the one who came alongside me and who brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we will be known. We will not be known uh, by uh, the physical attributes. We will be known by the spiritual characteristics that we have maintained here in this life. And we can't speculate on that any further than that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we will see Him as He is. And you know what, dear friends? I don't care what I look like when I get to heaven. I really don't. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like me. I want to be like Him. And the Apostle John says, when He appears, when we see Him, we will be like Him. Now that doesn't mean we're going to be gods. Some of our friends have been terribly mistaken in twisting Scripture. We're not going to be God. We're not going to be little gods. We're going to be like Him. There are only, there's only one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no room in God's kingdom for any other gods. Only one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will be like Him. We don't know if we'll look like we do now. That's not the point. We don't know if we're going to be older or younger, black, white, or brown, red hair, white hair, brown hair, blonde hair. Again, it doesn't matter. 
It's not the point. It's not what glory is all about in the kingdom of God. What is important and what is promised is that we will be like Jesus forever, glorified, fully sanctified, completely saved. But greater still, John said, we will be like Jesus as he is. As he is. Glorified and sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We will meet face to face. And that's what I'm looking forward to. We will stand face to face with the Christ who died for us. I've often wondered what Jesus looked like. Someday I'm going to see him as he truly is. Someday we're going to see the Father face to face. You know, in this life, in Scripture, there were those, Moses and others, who longed to look upon the face of God and God said, can't do it. No one can look upon my face and live. Holy God cannot look upon sinful man. Sinful man will die in the presence of holy God. But there is coming a day, my friends, when we are no longer sinful people and we will be granted the privilege to look upon our Father's face. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You don't know what he looks like. I don't know what he looks like. But someday we're going to see him as well. You mean the Holy Spirit has an appearance? Absolutely. The Father has an appearance. Christ Jesus has an appearance. The Holy Spirit has an appearance. He is a person just like the Father and the Son. We will see him face to face as well. Forty-five years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote the book, How Should We Then Live? It was a response to the rise and to the decline of Western thought and Western culture, where we in the Western world grew to great power and wealth and prominence, and now we're in the stages of decline. And in light of this great advancement and now this great decline, Francis Schaeffer said, how should we then live in light of the decline of this great culture? In light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, how should we then live? Knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment, at any day, how should we live? How should we conduct ourselves? What should our life be like? Well, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, everyone who has this hope, this assurance, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, our Lord, is pure. We should live every single day as those being conformed to the holiness and to the righteousness of Jesus Christ who is coming again to take us home. Stand with me as we sing and as we pray.
David. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name, Master, Savior. Take us from this house into the fields that are white unto harvest. Father, take us to those whom your Holy Spirit has prepared, whom you have called, that we might assist them in answering that call to salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, may we be inspired today to live for Jesus who died for us. And may we be watching and waiting for his appearing so that we, Lord God, can be changed from this life to the life, Lord God, that you've desired for us to have, a life that is immortal, a life that is sinless, a life that is glorified, a life that is in full and complete fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord. For Jesus Christ, who has made all of this possible. We love you, and we ask your blessing upon us as we go. In the name of our Christ Jesus, amen and amen. God bless you, and have a great day. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. Oh, R.G.